Uh, welcome to Spark. I'm Pastor Danielle. I'm one of the pastors here. And this is Kevin, my husband. Um, <laughs> look at that. <laughs> the latest cut off to locks of love. Now we'll just have to wait another few years to grow and donate again, yeah? We'll see how it goes, yeah. Um, we are going to do a little teach tonight on something that's been on my heart for a few months and talking with some of you and having some conversations. And so today we're having sort of a one-off sermon before we launch into our next series. And this title is Love the Lord Your God with All. And we wanted to kind of take a few moments to talk to you about something that we say every week and talk a little bit about what it means to us, why we say it. And also sort of unpack some of the implications for how we live out this life with Jesus together. Anything you wanted to add before we started? No, that was good. That was good? Okay, great. Perfect. That was amazing, actually. Wow. (laughs) Awesome. That's ridiculous. Okay. Uh, For those of you who don't know, we started Spark more than 10 years ago, um, nearly 11 years ago this fall, which is crazy and amazing. And when we started Spark, we started our first event before we ever had any service was actually this setting the stage for Jesus, understanding Jesus in his first century context. And my professor and rabbi and friend from Jerusalem, Rabbi Moshe Silbersheen, came. He was out here in the United States, and he came and spent a weekend with us and provided an incredible study. He and I co-taught together on understanding Jesus in his first century context. And it was fun and amazing and incredible. And we did that um, because we thought a lot of Christians... Um, are often surprised to know that Jesus was not a Christian. It's like, you know, but it's in the name, Jesus Christ. Um, But he's really not a Christian, but a first century Torah observant, kosher keeping Jew. And Rabbi Moshe came and talked. He was my professor of rabbinic thought and literature at Jerusalem University, and he came and did that. And not long after we launched our services, then Kevin did a wonderful event. You want to talk about your event? Which one? I mean, we did a lot of them. We did a lot of them, but the yeah. prone to wonder was the one I was first thinking prone about. Prone to wonder. Uh, for those of you who remember Dr. Kenneth Gibbs, who was uh, one of the founding members and, and just an amazing, wonderful human being, uh, we talked about this uh, relationship that has been contentious over time between science and faith and religion and, and belief and evidence and empiricism and all that stuff. And I, as the pastor, fascinatingly enough, talked very much about science and he, as the scientist, talked very much about the Bible and resurrection and miracles. So it was a really wonderful event to discuss that these, um, this bifurcation, this separation, this you can have one but not the other kind of idea that had been floating around, at least in the circles that we had been around, is, is a false dichotomy. It doesn't actually exist. Um, and one of the stories that I like telling is there was a, a, a person who had came. came I, it happened to me. Oh, it happened to you? You oh, were you're, up you're the... here. I'm the one that told you the story. <laughs> Do you have to take credit for telling me the story? Yes, yeah, you I'm do. I'm going to tell so, you the story. I was standing so in the back of the room. The story. Picture it now. I was standing right back there. Uh, Kevin and Kenny were up here speaking, and this woman standing next to me was silently just tears flowing down her face. This is the only time I've actually seen her at Spark. I, we never saw her since. And she stood in the back, and she said, I'm like, are you, are you okay? And she said, I'm an evolutionary biologist, and I am a Christian. And this is the very first time in my life when I have felt like both of those parts of me are welcome at the same moment, in the same space, and the same time. And it was at that event. 
Is that the story you were going to tell? That was the story. Okay, my story. It's my story. Um, So, (laughs) just teasing you. We also, for those of you who are like part of founding and starting and sort of sparking spark, um, one of the things that was a catalyst for that was we were trying to create a community where we could think and ask questions and study. And we'd been part of some church spaces. I don't know if any of you can relate to this, not you, but people in your row. Um, Maybe there was a time when you were part of a faith practice in Christianity that felt like there was some anti-intellectualism involved. I'm not saying that's true of all aspects of Christianity by far, but there are some veins of Christianity practiced here in North America, let's say, um, where an intellectual pursuit sometimes is demeaned. Like when I decided I wanted to go get my Master's of Divinity at Fuller Theological Seminary, I had people at the church say to me, well, now you'll lose your faith. Like, if you go to seminary and start actually studying, they're going to train the Jesus out of you. I was like, first of all, you know, Fuller is like an evangelical, non-denominational seminary. So if they're training the faith out of people, um, then we're all in deep trouble. Um, so, but I was told sort of like, it was almost as despised. Don't go do that. And people who just, you know, just give the Holy Spirit, like, it's time. Whereas A.J. Levine says, Dr. A.J. Levine says, why don't you give the Holy Spirit something to work with? Um, we wanted to go and study. And I also went and studied at Jerusalem University at great personal cost and expense. We went and made that investment. And we were doing all this work and study. And we started teaching. I started teaching and developing a class, which was then called Foundation Experiments, now called Garden to Garden. And it started teaching that with a number of you who were, some of you in this room, the first to go through those classes where we read every word or listened to every word of the Bible and tried to really grapple and study with it. And so a lot of sparks started with these various seminars of faith and technology and um, Daniel Wallace coming with about the New Testament, what is what we have now, what they wrote, all of those types of things. That was just for me. Um, they, <laughs> in that time, we kind of became known as the geeky church. It was like, I remember being in spaces where people were telling me, you don't need to do those things. But then we kind of had found a group of us together who were saying, no, like, that's what we really want to do. And we really want to study and figure out how to worship God through our study. Anything you wanted to add there? Well, and that was a, it was a criticism, too, for you, yes. I think, because yeah. part of what was, uh, what was difficult and challenging at that time is, ex- is exactly, I'm just kind of reiterating what you're saying, because this so, so much was the soup that we were swimming in. To learn, to study, to even ask questions was itself an affront to the faith that you held. And so for us to even do like this Daniel Wallace event was amazing, right? But it's It's a critical analysis of how in the world did you actually get the New Testament? Can you analyze how accurate transmission has been over time? You know, it's those kinds of questions. And we just always felt like if you're going to follow Jesus, believe in the Bible, have this really uh, foundational faith, then none of these questions are off limits. And in fact, all of these questions are demanded of you because the kind of faith that Christianity is, that Jesus started, was one that is deeply grounded in history and even science and empiricism and logic and all those kinds of things. And so that was, I think, 
it was always this weird, weird tension and criticism, and, and specifically, I think you had gotten, of course, we had both gotten it quite a bit. Well, and I think even that event with Daniel Wallace, people showed up, and some of you were here for that event, um, ready to fight with us. Like, they had their big, huge, thick commentary study Bibles. I won't mention the names of the persons that were involved in this fight. And they kind of walked in with a little bit of a chip and ready to say, like, how, how dare you? And I remember Omer and Christine, we had like a conversation during early days before Spark ever started. We were just after one of those foundation experiments, Garden Garden, hanging out. And Omer said, you, you guys are going to be our best friends because we're all reading some of these same books together. And it was, I mean, I think we all felt like, oh, we finally found some other sisters and brothers who are also wanting to read N.T. Wright or wanting to read and wrestle and study and discover. So to start Spark... It felt like, well, let's push on study. Let's push on, one of our values is reputation because we're going to work hard to really understand God and be able to teach well the text. Sometimes, sometime ago, somebody said, well, what's your holy discontent? The thing that makes you so mad you have to do something about it. And I used to joke that I wanted my holy discontent to be like horrific poverty and injustice. And, and it is in part, I'm not saying I don't care. But the thing that like makes me hot and sweaty and like my face red and a little bit nauseous is when I sit in a church and I hear teaching that is harmful. From me. Yes. <laughs> this happened three weeks. I'm just joking. Um, where I sit and think to myself, uh, there should be air sickness bags in the back of the pews where the hymnals are because I can't handle the abuse that's coming um, to a group of people um, from the teaching. And also just that sometimes it's just wrong. Now, I'm not saying we get it right all the time, but I felt like there should be space and a community that said, let's wrestle, let's think. And if Jesus is real, then Jesus can handle it. And Jesus already knows you have those questions anyway. It's the only people that don't know are the people in your row. And we all used to be maybe part of a community where it felt like if you asked the question or had the doubt and said, well, I'm not sure if I know this. I love what Rachel Held Evans used to say, like, on the days when I believe this. And then she would share, you know, a premise of Christianity. That she acknowledged that there was some wrestling and doubt in that. But many of us felt like we were in spaces where if you on a Tuesday said, I don't, I'm having a hard time and I'm not sure, like, where is God? That people were going to be like, oh, geez, let's pray. Let's get the accountability group together. We're all very concerned about you and we're going to have an intervention, right? Um, and that felt scary. So then you just never said it. But it wasn't that it wasn't true, right? So we started Spark with all that. So the push at the very beginning was coming from a place where a deep, personal, relational, uh, let's call it emotional. I mean emotional in the denotative sense, not kind of that negative kind of, oh, you're just being emotional, but truly emotion, loving, and needing to push hard on the intellectualism, push hard on the study. What's interesting is that now we have found ourselves in a place where we are sensing that maybe we are now being known as the intellectual place. And Kevin uses big words like teleology in his sermons. And now we're starting to maybe be categorized and identified in that particular space. And what we're starting to recognize is that while that is true, I do use words like teleology in sermons, and you're going to have to look them up, and I'll do my best to try to just bring it home and make it accessible to people, because I think and, it's and really important. And I might important. say Central Benjamin Plateau. Oh, yeah, and nobody knows what that is. But yep, you but will I, teach them when I'll you're teach, in, yes, in yes, Israel. Yeah. Um, we are recognizing that we are living in 
um, a perspective or a view that recognizes or, or believes that there are what, there's one part of us that is the thinking part, and then there's this other part that's the feeling part. And if there is an emphasis on one, or if there's a characteristic on one, then that is primarily who you are, and the other piece is either an additive, or it's a nice feature, or it's an occasional piece. But it's not core and central to who you are. And so what we're fighting against, um, and I mean that very loosely, just in the sense of like wrestling with, is to be able to continue to push on the study and recognize that our brains and our intellect and our cognition and our consciousness and our rationality and our logic and all that stuff is desperately needed, but not at the expense of or not in distinctive to or contradiction of your passion your personal experience, the excitement that you feel, your dedication, those elements and aspects of your faith, your kind of fundamental, I truly, really believe this, even perhaps as Blaise Pascal would say, uh, sometimes the heart has reasons that reason can never know. That there's an aspect of us that also recognizes that not everything fits into a scientific, logical, empirical box. And to do only the logical empiricism and, and critical study and all that kind of stuff is also missing a huge piece of who we are. And frequently, churches do this. In fact, you might know if you just do a little bit of an analysis and think through, there are some churches who are kind of known for this. It's just in our area. I can think of a couple that are really known for study, Bible study, deep passionate historical work, and you go there because you want to learn and you grow your intellect. But you know that worship stuff is not necessarily prioritized. And then you have the other kinds of churches that really emphasize the romantic, the ecstatic, the... Are you spirit-led? Spirit-led, spirit these church? kinds of elements. Yeah. But maybe don't necessarily focus in or care too much about historical geography, Biblical criticism, the original languages, teleology, any of those kinds of things. This is the tension that I think uh, Danielle has felt uh, for a fair amount of time with our church and, and over the course of our vocational careers. Um, and this is what we wanted to bring to you today, that we're kind of wrestling with this. Because I, I think people will try to categorize any person or any community or any faith expression. Oh, is that a this kind of church? Is that a spirit-led church? Is that one that practices in the gifts? Is that a church that studies? Is that a church that allows questions? Is that a church that... And we all try to categorize and figure out how, which bucket we're going to use. And I've heard, again, not you, but people in your row, people do this about even pastors here at Spark. Oh, Danielle is the pastor who loves Jesus, faith-led, spirit-led, is awesome. <laughs> Kevin is the pastor who thinks, uses big words, and is super smart, right? As opposed to, let me just say, I have a master's of divinity. I went and studied in Jerusalem. I can hike you all over the land. I study with the rabbi for fun. I work through the Duolingo Hebrew just for fun. I can, I can tell you all about Cenomanian limestone, Sinonian limestone, the Eocene chalk. I can talk to you about all these things. But somehow, because I love Jesus, I'm not smart or thinking, or intelligent, because I express that other part of myself quite a bit. 
And so we've heard people make these suggestions or categorize regarding Spark, regarding from people outside of Spark, people within Spark, regarding individuals, all of those kinds of things. And we would like to suggest that all of this type of conversation and division and splitting off actually forgets who we are, who Spark is and who we are as people of God. So we would like to suggest that you all stop dissecting the frog. All right? Stop trying to figure out what kind of frog it was by cutting it open and putting its little different organs in different places and discussing all about the frog. How about instead you just let the frog be in the pond, watch how the frog lives, see who the frog hangs out with, watch what the frog eats, and let the frog be whole and alive and breathing and at work. And what is fundamental about this, what's core, is that this is exactly what we've been saying every single week. And what we'd like to do is show you how and why we've been saying this every single week when we say, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And so as we talk through a little bit of thinking and feeling, intellect and emotion, heart and head, believing and doing, all of this stuff, all of this is summed up in those, that one phrase that we say every single week, love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, and with all of your might. But because of the words and the terminology and the definitions that are often in and our heads, translation, translations, etc., we are forgetting that when we say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, we are actually talking about this. And so that's what we'd like to share with you. So we'd like to start with where did we begin? And by where did we begin, we don't want to say where did Spark begin. We want to say where did the people of God sort of begin? And we would pull you right back to what is often called the Shema, because it is named after the very first word in Hebrew, as the Hebrew prayer is said, which is here, Shema. And this is from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and this is what we say every single Sunday, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. In Hebrew, Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloecha, B'chol levavcha uv'chol nafshecha uv'chol me'odecha. Okay? We say that every single Sunday. We do it because Jesus told us, when asked, that it was the most important commandment. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. He didn't make those words up. He's quoting text. He's always plagiarizing the Bible. Just joking. Okay. So Jesus is quoting the Shema. And when we say it, these are the words that we say. But when he's quoted in Mark 12, any good sparker that loves study, have you noticed? Have you ever opened up Mark 12, 29? And did you notice that it's actually, when you read it in the Greek, when you read it in the English, Mark 12, 29 adds a word. It adds the word mind. The first is this. Hear, O Israel, Jesus says, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. But in Deuteronomy, that word mind does not occur. And some scholars would question, and I would suggest, that when Jesus said the number one commandment, he actually didn't say the word mind. But later gospel writers, as they wrote it down into a Greek audience, had to write down the word mind. And we're going to explain why. 
Lois Traverberg's quote is super helpful. Many cultures assumed that the heart was the seat of intelligence. This makes sense. Did you guys all just stop right there? Do you, does your culture assume that heart is the seat of intelligence? No, our culture assumes that the head is the seat of intelligence, the mind. But many cultures assumed that the heart was the seat of intelligence, and this makes sense because the heart is the only moving organ in the body, and strong emotions cause the heartbeat to race. And when the heart stops beating, a person is dead. Because the Hebrews were a concrete people who used physical things to express abstract concepts, the heart was the metaphor of the mind and all, all mental and emotional activity. That, they believed that the heart was the place where all of that happened. And we have hints of this in our Gospels. In Mark chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus is there, and at once it says he perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, and he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? He doesn't say, why are you thinking that in your brain, in your gray matter? He's like, why are you thinking that in your heart? Or in Luke 5, it says, when Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, why do you raise such questions in your heart? He knew what they were thinking in their hearts. And that always start, jarred me when I was growing up and, and reading. I was like, why is their heart thinking? The head is the thing that thinks. And this then is how we get to a translation in the Gospel of Mark that when Jesus is asked what is the number one commandment, the author of Mark writes it down saying, mind. Why? So this will be somewhat review, and I apologize for those of you who are tired of hearing me talk about Hellenism, but it does come back <laughs> to a bunch of old dead white guys from Greece. Um, and the basic summation is that there was a intellectual movement around the 7th or 6th century um, in Greece that began to captivate the entire world through Alexander the Great, as well as the spreading of this uh, intellectual kind of uh, revolution. And what they essentially did is split these particular elements apart. Many of you have already heard me talk extensively about Plato as the one who is kind of the, the father of this idea that the chair is the chair, but if the chair actually, the physical chair goes away, the idea of the chair actually stays. And so Plato um, kind of conceptualized the idea being more important than the physical thing. And so this separation began to happen, not just with ideas and concrete things, but then also separating things like emotion and intellect. One of the analogies that is used um, from Hellenistic thought is the chariot that is being pulled. One is being pulled by rationality, a horse that is rational, and then the other horse is emotional and irrational, and you're always trying to fight these particular ideas. And so... We are inheritors of that. Uh, one of the things that's difficult and challenging about history, intellectual, conceptual history, cultural history, is that we are um, inheritors and benefactors of both, here are the two cities, Athens and Jerusalem. We have Jerusalem because we have our morals and ethics. We have our stories. We have our mythologies. We have the idea. We have our worship. We have service. We have those core and central ethics that drive us. But we're also benefactors of Athens, science, technology, reason, rationality, logic. But we are, as a result of that, we have inherited also that split. So on one side of us, we think or we believe that we are feeling, we have emotions, we have passions, and we have excitement. And then on the other side, 
There's thinking and critical examination, etc. I mean, this is how we think. And this splits, by the way, because we have this, and I know, I'm, I know you know this. This splits between groups of people. This splits between genders. Why is it that Danielle's comment earlier falls on her versus falls on me? Because there's a bias that we have inherited that we don't realize and recognize that senses or suggests. Even the words that we have inherited, for example, the word hysteria, you know, has feminine connotations because of this particular split. A false split that we will um, argue, of course. Now, the point that we're trying to make is that we, let's just recognize, call out, articulate, voice, give vocabulary to the fact that we are swimming in that bias. And by bringing it to light, hopefully we can do some damage to that uh, wrong-headed thinking. What we also want to do is recognize that our text, our history, and part of the reason why studying the biblical text and Christian history and Hebraic thought is so critically important is because we recognize that they came from a different place in a different culture. Remember Lois's quote? Well, you're going to find it here also in Deuteronomy. When all these things have happened to you, the blessings and the curses that I've set before you, if you call them to, say it, mind, among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, and you and your children obey him with all your... Does anybody want to guess what the Hebrew word is behind those two words? Does anybody want to guess? Yeah, it's the exact same word. This translation is doing in English what it kind of has to do if you're going to do biblical translation. It's going to say, well, in this particular point, they're talking about the mind. In this particular point, they're talking about the heart. But the Hebrews did not split those. And it's the word lev, levav, levavcha, which we mentioned earlier. And the translators are having to wrestle. But the Hebrews didn't, didn't wrestle. They knew and they understood that heart and mind were essentially the same. Let's talk. Because they're not talking about an organ in your body. They're not doing an anatomy lesson for you. They're not trying to explain that. They're trying to explain where every core essence of your motivation to love God comes from. And it all comes from one place. And so they're going to use the word love, heart. To illustrate even further, we have said this first part, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So we, we say that every single week. What we don't say is the rest of it to which that one portion actually alludes. If you were a good Jewish follower in the first century, you would recognize that that first line is actually an invocation of the entire paragraph. What is the entire? Uh, still today, by the way, if you know anybody who practices Judaism and you say Shema Israel, they will have context for the whole thing, not just the one line. And so read the next line. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Now, read the rest of it. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home, when you are away, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign. These are actions and behaviors that are essentially the description of what it means to love God with all your heart. They are actions they are behaviors. They are not feelings. 
So when this passage says to love God with all your heart, it says this is how you are to behave. And behavioral science would suggest that behavior is both thinking and feeling. And we can go into all sorts of intellectual history about the two of them in partnership together. But that is the conception. To love God with all your heart means to behave in a particular way. To do something. If you, if you walk away from the Shema and this number one commandment and the bumper sticker that Christians put saying, I really feel like I love God, that's great. But that is maybe 1% of what this passage is actually talking about. The other 99% is, what do you now do, and how do you actually behave, and does your life conform to the love that you confess? And if your life doesn't conform to the love that you confess, then you are not loving God with all of your heart. Yeah, God's not saying, hero Israel be cozy towards me. Feel oh. warm affection towards me. Because the word Shema means hear, but it also means listen, pay attention, and do it. It's when your mom or dad said to you, please take out the garbage, and then five minutes later they say, did you hear me? They're actually not asking, did you hear me say the words take out the garbage? What are they asking? Did you do it? Did you do it yet, right? That's the same here. In fact, and I don't know because I've never checked this out, but I, we've been told by linguists, by Hebraic linguists, that when Israel became a modern state, that because Hebrew had been a mostly spoken language but only within sort of Torah, Tanakh, Talmud, Talmudic settings, there wasn't a lot of modern Hebrew developed. Like television is not in Leviticus, so they didn't have that word yet, right? So if you want to say television in Hebrew, you say television. Okay, radio, radio. Like you, these things transfer over. Internet. Right. <laughs> um, telephone the yad, hand phone, right? Um, but if you wanted to say obey me, like you're a, a nation state that's going to have a general that needs a whole bunch of people to actually just obey a command, there wasn't a word in Hebrew in Old Testament biblical Hebrew that just meant obey because it's this word, hear, listen, pay attention, do it. So they had to come up with one that meant like blind obedience because it's not in this text. Some Hebrew history actually gives us some indications as well that the belief about this particular passage had these connotations. And there's also some really wonderful nuggets that we could spend a lot of time. So I don't want to cover all of it. I just want to kind of tease it out. There's this letter called Letter to Aristeus, which when the Hebrew Bible is translated to Greek, uh, this person, Aristeus, was writing a letter to his brother to explain why this was important. And one of the passages that he covers is the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6 passage. And he says the reason why we recite this, uh, the reason why this is so critical and important is because it means to meditate, to observe, to contemplate, and to obey it is to participate in the recreation of the world. Again, these are not just feelings, these are actions that are very commensurate with the God that they believed in. This God who created this world out of love put everything together exactly where it was supposed to be in accordance with Genesis chapter 1. That is what we do when we love God. 
And, and when we recite it, when we say it, we're saying God's words that God gave us back to God and also to ourselves and to one another. So there's an action framing even in the saying of it that, that brings all of that recreation and contemplation and, and prayer. And is it a prayer? Yes. Is it a statement? Yes. Are you reciting words back to God? Yes. All of those things together. Well, and Josephus talks about uh, the recitation or the, the citing of this as a ritual and a practice as part of our cultural identity to remind us who we are. Again, not to remind us what we feel like, but to remind us who we are. And one of the most stunning passages, and I'm sorry, I'm going to give a little bit more lengthy quote, comes from Philo of Alexandria. These are all first century Jewish thinkers, okay? So they're, we're trying to get into the mind of what did first century Jewish thinkers think. In addition to Jesus, it helps us give us some context. I love this quote. For there is no sweeter delight than that the soul should be charged through and through with justice, exercising itself in her external principles and doctrines and leaving no vacant place into which injustice can make its way. He bids them also write and set them forth in front of the doorposts of each house, the gates in their walls, so that the house who leave or remain at home, citizens and strangers alike may read the inscriptions engraved on the face of the gates and keep in perpetual memory what they should say and do. He's, he's, re, he's talking about this passage. And he's saying that this is how justice is established. We say this to remind ourselves of what we are supposed to say, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to act. This is what it means to love God with all of your heart. Careful, like, to do and to allow no injustice. Oh, I love this. And when they enter their houses, and again, when they go forth, men and women and children and servants alike may act as is due and fitting, both for others and for themselves. When we say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, this is part of what we mean. To remind ourselves of the kind of community, the kind of people that we are, so that we will allow, and I love that line, no vacancy for any injustice. We are pursuing justice when we love God with all of our heart. You know, Spark has the great blessing of sharing space here at Eitz Chaim. And in the Eitz space, if you walk around, you'll notice that there are small boxes tipped just slightly at a diagonal at the, ma at the entrances of all the different rooms. Those are called mezuzahs. If you want to say in, in, in plural, in Hebrew, it's mezuzot. And that just means the doorframe because they have taken this passage and in a scroll inside that small box, it is posted. And it is there to remind everybody. And if you're wondering, did Jesus do that? Yes, Jesus did that. And Jesus would have said this prayer every morning, this prayer, this declaration, this meditation, this recitation of scripture every morning and every evening. We're going to drive it home one more time with one last thing. So let's quick summary. Ancients did not understand the Shema, this love, love, Lord God, with all your heart, to be a split between head and intellect, heart and emotions. That was not their conception, and it should not be ours. They understood the Shema to be a practice, a behavior, and a way of living. That is its very nature, one, meaning heart and head, intellect and emotions, critical analysis and thoughtfulness and passionate pursuit and faithfulness. These things are one and the same in this mind. And it's summed up, we believe, or we see, in the very next thing that Jesus does. 
which is to equate that Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, with love your neighbor. Jesus takes uh, that first word that it happens in that sentence in Deuteronomy 6, ve'ahavta leve'acha kamocha, I mean, sorry, ve'ahavta at Adonai, love the Lord your God with all your heart. That ve'ahavta word is the same first word that is in Leviticus 19.18. And because he's a good rabbi and he knows his text very well, he can go, oh, that word God didn't use on, on accident. And he uses the same word in Leviticus 19.18, and that's not an accident. So those two go together. And so that's when he says... And the second is like unto it. In order to do that, then, love your neighbor as yourself. And the reason why at Spark we don't say the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength is because we want you to know that these things are not separate. That intellect is not separate from your heart. And that it should seat together as the ancient Hebrews believed it to seat together. And that means that we love our neighbors. That means that we don't split these things apart. Yeah. Do you guys live in a world where people want to set you into some sort of setting? Maybe you live in a university or a company where somebody's like, are you a techie or a fuzzy? Anybody heard about these terms? You can be in the hard sciences and you can be a techie or you can be in the humanities at Stanford and you can be a fuzzy. And those are soft sciences. And we probably even suggest that some people probably put those in quotes. Is that the word science in quote? And then some of the techies might go, yeah, that word is science in quotes. The historians and the people in humanities and philosophies and ethics, those aren't hard sciences. And the hard sciences are the ones that can be driven by data and can be provable. But isn't it true, and this is why people push on things like STEAM, is that something is deeply lost in our humanity when we only do data and we don't do history and ethics and philosophy and humanities. You want to know why there's an ethics crisis in Silicon Valley? It's because there's a whole bunch of people who are really good at coding or engineering or math, but nobody has taught them how to love their neighbor. And we want to suggest that these things shouldn't be separated anymore. That loving God with all, and this is the word behol in our Shema that we say every weekend, that loving God with all means all. The whole of who you are, all of you is welcomed and not just welcomed, needed at the table. All of it. Bring all of yourself to the table. Bring your heart and your head. Bring your believing and your doing. Bring your intellect and your emotion. Bring your thinking and your feeling. All of it is here. All of it needs to be here. Jesus calls all of it into full obedience in loving God and loving our neighbor. Because that's essentially who God is. Our God is one. That oneness is not just a singularity, but it's a all-encompassing whole of all of these things. Danielle asked me, like, how would I kind of sum this up? So I wrote a small little paragraph that I think sums up some of my thinking around this idea uh, as far as what, impl- what it implies for us and our humanity. When we split ourselves up, we naturally attribute a biased set of values to the parts. We give real value, monetary, social, and cultural, and power to those parts at the detriment to the other parts. 
And this, my friends, is the very definition of disintegration. When we continually do this, we are embracing an idea that there are some parts of us that are not as important as others. And we place value sets upon those elements. And that, my friends, is a detriment to our humanity because we are all of these things. Um, That disintegration has manifested itself in loneliness, in a separation in academia, in ecological destruction, has manifested itself in fractured communities, it's manifested itself in branding different churches, it's manifested itself in all sorts of different ways. And I think what we are attempting to do, which feels some days impossible, is to ensure that we do not disintegrate ourselves, our personhood, our individuality, and our community, because we need it all to live and thrive and be a full, complete partner in the shaping of who we are, in our faith, in our expression, in our gatherings, in our church. So, what do we want Spark to do and to be? How would we say it? Do we want you to think? Yes! Do we want you to feel? Yes! Do we want you to doubt? Absolutely! Do we want you to believe? Yeah. We want you to study, and we want you to act. We want you to be curious, and we want you to trust. We want us all to read. Let me just sit there for a second. (laughs) We really want you to read. No, (laughs) we want you to read. But we also want you to pray. We want to reason and think. But man, do we also want to worship. And this, my friends, is what we are attempting to do when we say, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. I said earlier that this at times feels uh, difficult and impossible, but we're going to give it a try because I love this G.K. Chesterton quote. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So what we are going to do, my friends, is we are going to keep giving it a try. Can we have seminars where our very belief foundations are challenged and we grow and we learn? Yes. But can we have those moments of illogical, irresponsible serendipity where you feel the Spirit of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit and you are caught up in a sense of wonder and amazement and mystery? Can you do that as well? Yes. Absolutely. I think for those of us who are so afraid to embrace the mystery, we should know that if you can't embrace the mystery, it'll make you drown. It's exhausting to try to keep one part of yourself alive and afloat while denying that the other part of yourself exists or to suggest that those don't relate to one another at all because all of our intellectual study and effort, all of that is informed by our emotional life, our experiences, our history, our understanding of the world. 
And all of those experiences are welcomed here. I meet so many of us in this community who have said, oh, I've had to reject some things and that rejection has cost me something. That maybe there's been a need to sort of reject supremacy. Good job. Nationalism. Yes, please. All of those things. But that doesn't mean that because in those moments or those other communities, you also felt the presence of God or, or you thought that you felt a movement of the spirit, that Jesus wasn't there. Jesus is everywhere. The question is whether or not we have eyes to see and ears that hear. Whether we're willing to open ourselves up to the mystery of it all. Repentance is part of this life. But it doesn't mean you have to deny that you had an experience with Jesus. That I had an experience with Jesus when I was 10, when I was 13, when I was 20, when I was 50. Jesus is here. And Jesus is present in it all. Don't fight to determine like, well, which part of it should reign sort of supreme in your personhood. These are Western Hellenistic Greek thoughts. Love God with all. Love God with all. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be talking more about how we do that. How we love Jesus with all. But I wanted to let you guys know that you don't have to fight that fight anymore. You don't have to say, well, if I go to this church, I have to turn off my brain. And if I have to go to this church, I have to turn off my heart or my emotions or whatever it might be. The presence of the Holy Spirit is here too. All of it is welcome. Let's open ourselves up to the mystery. Elizabeth Barrett Browning said that the whole earth is aflame with the presence of God. But only those of us with eyes to see will take off our shoes. So my prayer for us this week's bark is that we'll take off our shoes. And one of those mysteries is right here in front of us. That every time we come to this table, we dine with the King. We dine with our risen Savior, Jesus, who invites us to this table. This table that existed 2,000 years ago and mysteriously exists today as well. And unites us into the whole body of faith. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it saying, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you and do this in remembrance of me. What a mystery that is. And likewise, after that, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table and your whole self, all of you is welcomed to this table.